What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Country Roads Confidential here at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. I am a writer, a provocateur at the website. My name is Mike Casaza. Welcome in here. It's a Saturday in October without a football game to watch, cover, obsess about before, during, and after. But we have a lot to discuss right now, and I promised you, if you gave me questions, I would give you answers. And even though we are idle this weekend on the football field, our minds are anything but idle because we are in a pretty cool part of the college sports season. Football is kind of heating up and also winding down at the same time. Urgent, tense part of the season. And basketball is very much the same, although it's just beginning. Urgent, intense. And just getting loose, just about to get into the games that count here. So there's a lot we can get into, and we will. One thing I want to ask from you, after you have asked me so many things, is if you are not a VIP member, give it a thought. Not a shot, give it a thought. Check out our website this week, and look at all the stuff that we covered. No game, we said, right? I challenge you to find more content about football. About punts. About recruiting. About Jimmy's and Joe's and X's and O's. And then also a lot of basketball, too. And if you think, ah, that's pretty good. Maybe you want to check us out. Maybe you don't like the whole pay-for-news concept. I get that. It's 2019, but I get that. But we have something for you. How about a dollar for the first month? Just a dollar. It's a couple cents per day. Per day! Not even per article per day. And we can do that for you. I'll slap the link at the bottom here and just go look at it. You'll see a bunch of reasons why it's a good idea. Ten reasons, in fact. Ten cents a reason. And if you don't like it, you're out after a month. Just make sure you cancel. If you do like it, there's plenty of ways we can incentivize future membership for you. But think about it. Have a look. If you like what you see, jump in the pool. It's pretty fun over there. But let's get into the questions. We'll begin right now with a pretty simple one from WB2302, who asks, Taking into account all of the attrition and the schedule played so far, what grade would you give Neil Brown and his staff through seven games? It's a tough one. Collectively, makes it difficult to assign one grade to offense, defense, special teams, head coaches, coordinators, everybody, right? And I'm an A or an F guy. I want to see everybody succeed or fail. It is a black and white world <laughs> in which I live and work, and it makes things easier for me to decipher and discuss. I don't know if you can go F. You certainly can't go A. You have a team that is kind of like a C- minus right now, right? I do think that the attrition is impossible to ignore. It's impossible to say it hasn't had an effect. Not sure it's cost them games, though. I think it's cost them opportunities to get better, in the middle of the schedule in particular, I think it's caused some opportunities to extend games from halftime into the third quarter, third quarter into the fourth quarter. I think that's fair to say. I'm not sure they win any of these games if they have Giovanni Stewart and Martel Petaway and Tevin Bush and Van Darius Cowan and Josh Sills. Some are all of them. It's definitely a different story if they're all there. But are they 5-2? and two? Nah. 4-3? and three? I would argue no. I would certainly listen to your argument for yes. C-minus seems... Maybe right, since they're above 500, or excuse me, below 500. C-plus seems maybe 
deserve it because they've been around in these games into and through the third quarter. C seems about fair if we want to balance those two out. Next one, Dub V got him, who asks, how is the season playing out in comparison to your expectations coming in? Overall, I mean, coaching, on-field performance, recruiting, student section attendance, parentheses, I kid, etc. If you go back to um, conversation that Chris and I had in the beginning, I'm pretty sure that I had them at three and four with the exact number of wins and losses um, as they had happened. So this is not a terrible surprise to me. They didn't lose a game I thought they would win. They didn't win a game I thought that they, excuse me, they didn't lose a game I thought they would win. They didn't win a game I thought they would lose. It's a tongue twister. I wasn't ready for that one. Point remains pretty much on par. Coaching has not been a problem to me. I think we can look at some situations where clocks or down a distance or go forward or punt and be like, oh, I'm not sure I did the same. It's not an everyday thing with Neil Brown and his staff. By and large, they're prepared. They play hard. They don't look lost. And even if you'd like to see more consistency in a plan in the running game or better performance in the running game, perhaps set up by better coaching, it's not for lack of effort. They're trying different stuff all the time. That's encouraging to me. I'm okay with that. On-field performance, surprise in some spots. I thought they'd be more along, more further along, more developed, more advanced offensively. And they're not. Defense is probably about what I thought taking some hits right now that make it different, but we knew they were going to be thin in the secondary. This is not necessarily what we expect when we talk about injuries, but we knew that that was the potential. Recruiting is a guess for me. It seems like it's okay. Not a lot of news, but that means not a lot of bad news, that there's not a lot of good news or any news, right? Uh, student attendance is obviously a joke, but overall, three and four, with the wins and losses as they've come, even the scores and the spreads and the way that they've unfolded with teams getting away in the third and fourth quarter, very little about this is surprising to me. From Twitter, David Hart asks, I'm currently holding a win total betting slip that reads over WVU four and a half. I'm forever an optimist. My question has two parts. What do you think the odds are that I win this bet? And how would you rank the remaining opponents in terms of the likelihood of a WVU win? One... 50-50 are the odds. Either you go over or you don't, right? I think what you're getting at here is, is there a chance they don't win two more games? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that they can get two more. I think that they have a chance still to get a bowl game. Um, can they go three and two? I don't see why not. How would I rank the remaining opponents in terms of the likelihood of a win? I thought about this. This is tricky. Your remaining opponents in order on the schedule Baylor, Texas Tech, Kansas State, Oklahoma State, TCU. The easiest, and I'm using air quotes here in my office, is Texas Tech. Next is Kansas State, followed by Oklahoma State, TCU, and Baylor. I gave a lot of thought and consideration to Kansas State and Oklahoma State and whether or not they should be 4-3 or 3-4. I think it's going to be easier to win on the road at Kansas State than at home against Oklahoma State just because of the offensive firepower at Oklahoma State. Um, they're not very good at home either. It seems to me they're probably better away sometimes. Oklahoma State, I'm speaking of. And their offensive firepower is pretty legitimate. Right now, it's going to be hard for West Virginia to, one, stop on offense like that, but two, go back and forth. I also thought about four and five. Baylor 
just seems like it's ripe for the picking right now. I don't know if it's just cliches and media stuff, but they are riding really high right now in Waco, Texas. They've had an extended period of time to kick up their heels and look around and say, wow, we worked really hard to get this view. I like it. And you wonder what happens sometimes. Do they wander? Do they wane? Can they keep it going? Um, that's going to be a tough environment for West Virginia for sure. It's going to come with challenges for Baylor. A home game Thursday night ESPN. That's the type of stuff Baylor's been pushing for for a long, long time. They've done exquisite work to arrive 7-0. It's not going to be easy easy to get out of there 8-0. I promise you that. And I thought about making that actually not the hardest game in TCU. I just can't give up on Gary Patterson. He's resilient. They got a really good running game late in the season. Um, they're probably going to reinvent themselves a little bit here as we get deeper on and focus on what they do best. That's going to be a hard game, I think, for West Virginia to win. But I would say most likely, at least likely, as far as wins, Texas Tech, Kansas State, Oklahoma State, TCU, and Baylor. Palooza asks, if we do see Jared Dagey, in what situation do you think it happens? It seems unlikely at this point, barring several more consecutive bad losses, that he would just be named a starter. But it also seems unlikely anyone beats us quite as bad as OU did. So we may not have much garbage time from here on out. So would they consider putting him in for a random drive? Wouldn't that hurt basically everyone? Sorry for the long multi-question. Another really good question. I think Daigie plays. I don't think he pops in for a series. I don't think he grabs them off at the end of the game. I think that he's going to start if certain conditions are met. I think if they are three and six or three and seven, and they are either definitively or most likely not going to make a bowl game, I think he'd give a lot of thought to saying, hey, Austin, thanks, man. Thanks. We've seen a lot. We know what we have. But 2019 is now about 2020. Why don't you heal up? Maybe something needs to be scoped or snipped or whatever. Get your hand, your knee, yourself right. Come back and do it in the spring. We're going to start digging. And you see what happens. I think that's a very intriguing idea. And I think if it happens, that's how it happens. And I also think that Daigie's going to play at some point during this season. I did talk to someone who, I trust their opinion. This is not a capital S someone, but a person I kick ideas around with. And this person told me, if Daigie's good, why wouldn't you just play him against Baylor? If he's that good, which is an if we do not have an answer to right now, but if he's that good, this is your last chance to really have a wow game. And what's going to rest the attention of your fans or college football then springing a surprise like that, playing Daigie, get some juice, see what happens. And then you just figure out how you're going to count to four the rest of the way, which may be tricky because you may have 13 games out of 12, but I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea. I don't think it happens, but hey, shoot the moon, right? Moving on, BDZL asks, would you care to give a little deeper dive on what head coach Neil Brown might be thinking with how he scripts his first couple of drives? They work well, but specifically, what does he? But specifically, why does he do entire drives with pretty much all runs, or on another series, go with almost all passes? as opposed to mixing them up a little more evenly. He's done it multiple games this season. Yes, um, interesting. That's me opening a Diet Coke, by the way. It's a good question, BDZL. I've noticed it. I think we've all noticed it. 
And um, it's hard to give you an answer there. When you think about scripting plays, you think about the old cliche of how a coach or an offense coordinator will script their first 15 plays. It's not necessarily like that because um, let's say you're in a third and one on your fifth play, but the fifth play in your call sheet is four verts. <laughs> That's why you don't sequentially script them. So it's plays that Brown and his coaches have picked out and plays that they like for that game for certain downs and distances too. So first and tens or maybe and 10 plays, first and 10, second, and 10, third and 10, and you have a handful there that work in practice or conceptually against that opponent. And once you fall into those certain down and distance, again, and medium and short, things like that, um, you pick out a play that you think is going to work for those downs and distances. And those plays that you picked out for the game are picked out to work against that defense. But those plays are actually plays that West Virginia has run or can put in that are going to work against that defense in that down and defense situation or down and distance situation. So with respect to the question, I don't know. Because you think he's probably just measuring his jab a little bit. You know, when can he wind up and throw a big punch? But he's probably just seeing what works in practice that can also work in a game. And then that gives him ideas about what he can use that stems off of that. So a similar run scheme, a similar protection, a similar route combination, similar personnel, similar formations. It's a lot of if-then stuff. Um, the 15 plays doesn't really apply, I don't think. But I think he scripts things about not necessarily what he wants to have happen because he wants to get the ball in the end zone. I think he scripts as to what he needs to learn from the defense in the first drive or two because the rest of the game is going to come from a whole bunch of adjustments that coaches make in between series, in between quarters, in between halves. The sooner you can anticipate those changes by forcing things and making them show their hand and show their reactions, the better you're going to be during the game. It's a really good question. Why do there seem to be a lot of situations where they just run or just pass to start the game? I don't know. Again, it may just have to do with formations. It may just have to do with trying to flush out a bunch of things and see what works. Um, I don't have a great answer for you there. I wish I did. But I think if we think about the overall goals, which are to see what teams are going to do to what you show them, you can get a lot from seeing just how teams respond to a personnel grouping or formation. And you can run or pass out of that formation. So if they run a couple times out of the same formation, you can kind of dial up in your idea, in your head, different ideas about how you can pass against their response to that personnel in that formation. I hope that makes sense. It's a really good question. I wish I had a better answer for it. v 2210 says, any indication as to why the coaches haven't had the offense use pre-stat motion that was successful earlier in the season? I get that our depth seemingly diminishes by the game, but it helps spark the running game, and that's been the weakest, the biggest weakness these last couple games. Thanks, and go ears. Hmm. I actually thought there was um a good amount of motion against Oklahoma, and they were sometimes rewarded for it. It kind of opened windows for receivers or pulled safeties out of the way. You saw a lot of um, jet action or running backs flooding out before the snap, and that's good. It, it manipulates the defensive backs. I also think about your question and what games that did have motion. I'm thinking James Madison, NC State, and Kansas. Um, First-time defensive coordinators there. So you don't have a whole lot to study on film because you don't know what those teams are going to do with new leadership on their defense. And again, JMU first game, NC State third game, you really don't have a whole lot of in-season footage. I think now 
later on in the season against teams that have continuity, Texas, Iowa State, Oklahoma, um, you can kind of study what they do on tape. Texas and Iowa State have had the same coordinator, same plan for a couple of years. They're similar, too. So you don't need to have a lot of motion to understand what they're going to do because one week was kind of similar to the next. And also, they've been on tape for a couple of years now. Oklahoma, a little different, but you're talking six games on tape. Teams will generally look at four or five for recent trends. Also, Alex Grinch at Ohio State is behaving similar there as he does here now. Um, something else about formation, too. Uh, you do want to get the defense to declare their coverage, man, zone, whatever. You know, who's the mic? Who's going to follow your guy in motion? All that stuff. You can unbalance formations and you can create number advantages. West Virginia's run game is, is kind of so weak right now that teams are really winning with light boxes that you can't tilt. You know, you're not going to pull them out of the balance they want or the formation they have. And also, motion may put the offense in a bad spot, too. It may put a receiver somewhere where maybe he can't make a block he has to. It may put too much on a tight end or a tackle or a running back. Um, a whole bunch of solutions there to um, problems that come and go, I think. I'm not sure the motion solves everything that's going wrong with the running game. Next question, grumpy old man. I totally understand our offensive line is very young. I also understand running back was supposed to be our strength. At times, I feel like they passed block pretty well. Oklahoma didn't sack Kendall, which says they blocked pretty well. Why can't they run the ball? Why is run blocking so hard? I realize we're young, but they're still D1 players. Have to be able to run block better than what we've seen. What's the issue? Good question. That is the question right now. I think it's kind of funny because you're right. Run blocking is hard. Offensive linemen will tell you that run blocking is a lot more fun than pass blocking because you get to punish people. But pass blocking is probably easier because you're kind of holding a spot. You're not going out and executing a whole lot of things, and um, the guys are coming at you, and you just kind of deal with that. Maybe I'm wrong there. I think youth has a lot to do with it. Strength and leverage and experience matter. Uh, communication matters, and defenses have, have shifted and slid before the snap. They've stunted and twisted and played a whole bunch of games with WV up front, and that stuff has been effective. Um, you have to see those things a lot before you can just kind of instinctually trade them off and know that the guy you're throwing something at is going to be able to take it. Um, West Virginia's guard center guard is not accustomed to that yet. It's gotten better, and it's not great. Uh, I don't think the running backs have been great either. There are hesitancy issues. There are decisiveness issues. They don't shake tackles. They don't break tackles. They're not especially fast. I think some of the calls have been questionable. Some things that the defense sees a lot and knows what to do with. Um, really, it's never one thing. I think what's curious is that they do so much from week to week in the run game. And I asked Neil Brown this during the week, too. Does the constant reinventing of the run game does that contribute to maybe not being as far along the run game? You know, are they not as good as three or four things because they don't continually do those three or four things every week? And that's perhaps a heavy question. I think it's a good question. And he gave a good answer, which I'll write about this week. But the truth be told, there's not a whole lot you can do in the run game. There's inside zone, there's outside zone, there's counters, and there's certain things you can do off of that you can dress up. Um, West Virginia does a lot of formations in motion to kind of window dress a small quarter number of plays. Um, West Virginia's offensive linemen probably aren't great in space, so you don't see a lot of pulling. 
We'll see a lot of toss sweeps. You know, the screens are not run plays, but I think you can look at those and see that it's hard for these guys to get out in space and block right now. Um, and that maybe just comes over time and they get more accustomed to it. Not one thing. I just think that the overall quality being not at the bar, not at the level they want it to be at in a number of areas is the most prohibitive. They're not great at anything right now, but they're not really good at enough stuff to be effective. TDTB10 says, as of today, what would you set the over-under win total for next football season? A lot of changes between now and then. So can you project what you expect those big changes will be in getting to your over-under number? That's a tough question right now, TDTB10. If they get hot and finish 8-4, and four, you'd think, wow, they're going to be great next year. If they slump and they finish 3-9, and nine, you're going to feel pretty bad. So I don't think we have an answer to that. I think that it's safe to say they end up in that 5-6 to six win range. So if that's the case, and I think a lot of us agree that's a possible outcome, not likely. Um, if they go 5-7 and seven or 6-6, six and six, I don't know how you can accept less than 6 wins next year, right? Because if this is a year 0... And if it's about rebuilding and just getting things situated for next year, well, gosh, they got to be better next year, right? So let's say they go five and seven. They better win six. So I think whatever their win total is, plus one, plus two, that's very reasonable. And also, Neil Brown went from four wins his first regular season to nine wins and then a bowl win in his second season. What changes? They need game breakers on offense. Their best plays on offense have been splash plays to Sam James and TJ Simmons and even Martel Petaway before that. Um, they need tackle breakers and they need tackle avoiders. They're getting the ball into space or they're setting up situations where the ball can't get into space. You got to complete some passes. You got to get through some holes, but you also got to block for the pass. And you also got to block for the holes. But erasers, I think is what they're going to call it. They need people who can take a great play as far as it's supposed to go. And they need people who can erase a mistake and take a play a lot further than the execution of that play deserves it to uh, demands that it goes so people who can splash and defensively they need they need that wrecking ball at bandit or defense band who can get in the backfield their chaos plays um have been down a lot lately too so playmakers you gotta have players bad answer to a good question but a true answer nevertheless NC Wayward Ear asks, what is your opinion about what to expect as it relates to transfers after the season? Which positions could be the most impacted? How do these potential losses affect building the future rosters and relate to recruiting going forward? I like this. We're going to see transfers. It's going to touch the offense and defense. It's going to be you know, on the lines, at the skill positions. It's inevitable. Um, that's going to happen every year. There's always things you expect. There's always surprises. It always happens with a new coach, but it always happens in college football. I would not be seduced by the quantity of players. I would think quality. And we saw this a couple of years ago where, oh my gosh, 16 players left. And then we looked at the list and it was like, eh, like 13 of those guys weren't good, right? Something like that could happen again where parts leave. But if you think that Dana Holgerson left the cupboard bare and a lot of players left, I don't think you also get right to be, you're also, I don't think you're also right to be upset about that. If he didn't like his roster and then players leave, is that bad? I think one thing you do have to watch, and this ties into your question about future rosters and the recruiting going forward, 
is that, yeah, you could have quantity without much quality, and you could lose older players who just haven't contributed much. You don't want that to happen because you like this roster to get older. That's going to happen. I would keep an eye on the freshman class. Um, the December signing date, that really keeps kids on board after a coaching change. They don't have a lot of options after they sign in December. Um, credit to the coaching staff. They kept the coaching, the recruiting class together after December. But if we're being honest, those players who signed in December did not have a lot of options in January and February. So they're here and they gave it a shot. What happens now? I'm not forecasting a lot of changes. I think it'd be strange, but if all of a sudden they lose parts of that recruiting class, ugh, man, then a young team is going to get younger. And it's hard to keep that continuity and that that continuation of building, maturing, going. Kurt Hurley asks, one, next likely commit to happen. Two, over under, we score more than 21 points with the offense. In three or more of the remaining games, and then three, buying or selling with WVU average more than two yards per carry the final games of the season, final five games of the season. Uh, number one, next likely to commit, if you listen to Chris's Country Roads Confidential Podcast with Garrett Green, I think there's a really big clue in there. I would recommend you go listen to that to get my answer. Um, number two, over underscoring 21 in three of the remaining games, over. Not a lot of great defenses left in the schedule. Maybe not a great offense in-house, but not a lot of great defenses left. Also, I don't think they're too far away offensively. I'll go over. And then three, buying or selling average more than two yards to carry the final five games. Buy. By the way, 21 points and two yards to carry, those are really modest goals. If you don't hit those, then I'm sure we're going to have a slew of other questions after that. Rebels52 asks, out of the current 2020 commitments, who do you see having the biggest impact in their first year on campus? I like the way you phrase the question, current 2020 commitments, because I look at them, I have some questions about the current group and the immediate impact. So the phrasing there is interesting to me. I think it's worth talking about because there are players who are packed with potential who are putting up really nice seasons and statistics in high school. But let's also look at what you have. You have a right guard. You have a quarterback. You have an outside linebacker. You have a center. You have a defensive tackle. <laughs> slot receiver. Defensive end. Tight end. Those are not first-year impact players. I think if you're talking about impact guys, you're talking, well, where do they need help? Safety. Cornerback. Offensive tackle, receiver. And those are positions where newcomers can make an impact. A corner can play as a freshman. We're seeing it this year. A defensive tackle can play at a junior college. And receivers can play as freshmen. So there are options in there that do look pretty good. I think of the ones that are listed. David Vincent Nicoli, cornerback, having a really good year. More advanced than Gyro Favorites. I think that's an easy one to project. Jacob Gamble, junior college offensive tackle. Going to be a need to tackle. A junior college kid has an edge. It would be nice if he can get in early. And Washington, receiver, Michigan, 6'4", 215, looks the part. They're going to need help outside for those positions, too. Um, losing George Campbell. 
not a great big deal, I don't think. He's been a good locker room guy, hasn't been productive on the field. So, yeah, they're going to have players back. They don't have a guy who looks quite like that. And the one that they do have, Bryce Wheaton, he might be able to use a push from a guy like Washington. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Continuing on here. From Twitter, Brian S. McCormick asks, should I be, should I be concerned with the current state of WVU's 2020 recruiting? I might have made you concerned there. Um, I think that they're going to be fine, probably, and nothing unusual for a first-year class. Um, and especially if you don't make a bowl game, you don't do great, but you really need about two years to get it going. So next year is the one that you might have more permanent concerns about. So if you're like me right now and you think the WVU needs splash players and you don't see that from the immediate impact players that we just went over, or if you're kind of hoping that Vincent Nicoli, Gamble, and Washington are it, uh, yeah, probably going to be a little bit concerned. If you're talking about losing a player, which just happened this week. Eh, probably not. Wasn't playing a whole lot. I think that was kind of a flyer for West Virginia where get in early, buy some stock, and if it works out, great. And if not, shake hands, say thank you very much. If you don't like the number of players, yeah, that's a big deal, I think. That December signing day is pretty rapidly approaching here. But three losses in a row here, some bad signs, I think. Not stuff that's going to excite high school players or junior college transfers, but you don't see a lot of people bailing now. I would say give it a few weeks. They've had, what, two weekends here to do some work, go out, visit some people, watch some games, be seen, maybe correct course on some conversations people are having about their team and their future. So they might pull some people in. So this might be a better one to answer in a couple weeks. Winning is a great elixir too. But again, remember, you're dealing with a new staff right now and learning who and what they like. Kind of hard to get a feel for that right now. So have concern for this one. I would save your more permanent reactions and feelings and worries for next year. Uh, next question. Neil Brown talks about being a foundational year, instilling toughness, discipline, etc. What is the next level of building the program for the offseason and going into next year? That is an excellent question. The foundational year and trying to get people to buy into the program, be tough, do your job, stuff like that. All the things you mentioned that Neil Brown has uh, repeated several times. I think it's laying out a nice foundation right now. It seems to be working. Again, they're not getting blown off the field by teams not named Oklahoma right now. They hang around. They fight. They're ready. I think that's a good sign, which means that that stuff is probably happening. I think that the next level you're talking about, you're going to have to have some frank conversations with people this winter. You're going to have to have in or out moments, either where the staff is in or out the player, or the player is in or out the staff. You're going to need a big December class 
and quantity, whatever, but you're going to need big names, big contributions. It'd be great to have kids who are here in January, whether they are early enrollees or transfers, because the sooner they're indoctrinated and that foundational year becomes shorter for them and easier for them to transition into. I do think they're going to need to win some recruiting battles. They're going to have to get players that will surprise people. Getting the players that they can get right now, not going to be terribly impressive, I don't think, because this could go in a bad direction, right? So they are capable of going into living rooms and classrooms and talking people into this. They probably need to do that a few times to get some some players who are going to be helpful and who think they can help turn this around. Something else that kind of ties into that with the recruiting battles, you hear about this buy-in at the Pushkar Center, how the players are bought in and people really believe in the process and the climb. By and large, believe it's true. But does that same buy-in exist in high schools and junior colleges, too? We'll see. Uh, Butler Ear shifts on us here, asks a basketball question. He says, with three seniors and three commits, how many more faces do we see? And at what positions? This means for next year, of course. Um, I'm hedging toward two. One, a big power forward, a big power forward center type. One, a point guard wing type that hits it from deep at 40%. Um, ambitious there, Butler here. I would say that you can expect more than the three seniors departing. It's not unusual to have one or two extras around here. It would be unusual if it wasn't two, to be honest with you. I don't think anybody would be surprised if one of their uh, big two, um, Oscar or Culver, is gone next year. Maybe both. Either way, if one or both of them leaves, those are good problems because that means you had a good season. If you have a good season, it's easier to replace that. I do think they'll need a big for sure. The next one, if I'm just going to say two, is interesting. I think they need wings, and the 3-4 spot is going to be really interesting this year. Because that, that is a matchup position in the Big 12. That power forward spot, if you can be stretchy and you can shoot and dribble and, and kind of triple threat some people, that's a advantage for your offense and for your defense. You can guard a guy like that on the other end. And right now they have Matthews to play the three. They don't quite have someone like that to play the four. We don't know about Gabe from Arkansas yet. And if Shebway and Culver are playing the four, not quite the same. They're going to have to guard a four. Four is going to have to guard them. But that stretch kind of player, that wing that's a big three or a four that can move, if you can find that, that's great. It helps you with the size that you presume to lose. And it gives you some matchup possibilities. Because I think they do have a nice situation at guard for a while now. Shooters, point guards, maybe some defensive help there. It'd be good if they could stay big even if they lose some of big, and it'd be good if they could kind of create that one position where they can have and they can match advantages. Lex P. City asks, waivers for immediate eligibility are starting to come in at a pretty rapid pace. Confidence level in Osa Buhin receiving a transfer waiver. I think he's a critical piece to this year's team. I have no idea how or why you are stating that, except that you may have heard other people. Um... I just haven't seen him yet do anything. I will take your word for it, Lex P-City. If he's here, great. That gives him a full complement of players, and it solves that four spot for them that I was just talking about. I'm not sure he's a great scorer. I don't think there's going to be great scores against him if what you hear is true. Evidently, he's a pretty tough, no-nonsense player who is not going to let people push him around at that four spot. That could be good. 
wouldn't worry too much about other schools getting waivers right now. Even um, the Arkansas transfer who was denied his waiver at Tulsa, it, it's not done alphabetically. It's not done by a school system or anything like that. What kind of happens is that the NCAA's office has a handful of people who handle these waivers, and they just take them as they come in. It's kind of like the homicide shift, I guess, that you see on TV in the, in the, the station. The phone rings, ah, it's your turn. You get it. The email bings, and ah, it's your turn for the waiver. Or the boss comes in and says, one for you, one for you, two for you, two for you. They kind of get assigned to you, and one person's stack could be larger than another person's. One person may have easier decisions to make than another person. So I may have five, and you may have 25. My five may be really hard and take me a long time. Your 25 may be really easy, and we may finish at the same time. It's it's just a difficult process to predict. Um, I wouldn't compare one to the other. It's probably not a great sign that the Arkansas transfer didn't get his waiver at Tulsa, but he left like two days after the coaching change. It seems like just a traditional transfer that just didn't work out. We don't know what Gabe O from Arkansas might have pursued as far as the waiver. I will tell you that West Virginia would not apply for one unless it thought it had a really good chance of getting it. They're not going to waste the NCAA's time. I do think it's probably interesting and perhaps telling that Gabe O from Arkansas did not play in the scrimmage. But we don't know. I wouldn't worry based on what other schools are experiencing. I would worry that we're getting pretty close and don't have an answer. Not because that they're not going to get around to him. They will. And not because they're not taking him seriously. They are. I would just worry that you don't know yet. And it'd be nice to let the kid know if he's eligible. Uh, Sedgel WVU asks, who is the best high school athlete in West Virginia across all sports and time periods that you've ever watched play live? This is a good question because it made me think for a little bit about a time long ago in my career. I will couch this a little bit by saying when I was covering high school sports for the Dominion Post, I was not doing a lot. And I was not getting the glory assignments. I was very much the bottom of the totem pole. I did a lot of desk stuff. I took calls. I hammered out agate. Um, and I probably got the least exotic assignments. Um, nothing against the teams, the coaches, the players, the communities. But there was not a lot of elite action going on in Blacksville, in Preston County, in Lost Creek, places like that that I got to go to. So I did not see a ton of great athletes. I saw good games and good teams. Don't get me wrong. Um, I did not have an expended glance at the best of the competition and the competitors. It did change a little bit later on when I was full-time doing basketball and I was just kind of higher up in the totem pole. There were fewer people and there were a lot of assignments still. So I did get to see some people. Uh, Brandon Barrett of Martinsburg was amazing. was amazing. I thought for sure he'd be a college and perhaps even one day NFL player. Uh, Josh Colbertson at Nitro had one of the best games I've ever seen and was excellent that season. Jeremy Rodimer at Morgantown High was unstoppable. I thought he'd be a great college football player. Matt Shamblin at Parkersburg South was a very good athlete uh, on the football field and on the basketball court. And then just to kind of throw you off a little bit, um, thought Seth Easter was a great wrestler. The couple times I saw him and just thought, oh my gosh, this guy makes it look so good. And turns out he was great 
in track and field too. So we're talking about athletes, track and field and wrestling. Not similar. He's pretty good at it. But I would also say there was a time where high school basketball on the girls' side was great. Uh, Carrie Pryor, Renee Montgomery, Alexis Hornbuckle, three excellent players who were all playing right about the same time and were really good and were really fun to watch. Swag year. What are you hearing about expectations for the basketball team? Bob Huggins seems like he is overly comfortable going into the season with this crew. What's your prediction for wins and losses? Who would lead the team in points, rebounds, assists, and steals? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Points, rebounds, steals. Uh, who will be named the All-Big 12 team? And then two more questions from him that I'll get to in a second. Um, what do I hear? I hear they are still a work in progress. It's still a young team, everybody. Um, just a few older players than last year and just a few less younger players than last year. So some of the same problems, maybe not in the same quantity. I don't think you have to worry about chemistry as much, but still a work in progress. If you don't worry about the chemistry, um, you probably figured they're going to like coming to practice because they don't dread each other or negative experiences or guys who don't do their part, whatever. But it seems like everybody's pretty eager to go to the gym and they'll get better. Um, they do make shots near and far. It's not clean or easy to get the offense going, though. Uh, turnovers have been a problem. They don't pass very well. And they're working a lot on that. Um, but they're going to need their offense. I don't think you're going to see them press a whole lot. Um, defense may be tricky in the conference and some of these non-conference games. So they might need their offense to bail them out a little bit. Wins and losses. The Vegas over-under is 19 wins. It's minus 135 for over, which means you got to bet 135 bucks to win 100. And it's only plus 110 for the under, which means $100 wins you 110. So it looks like they think they're going to win 19, 20 games. I don't think the Big 12 is going to be great this year. Top heavy, maybe, and then pretty thick in the middle, what may be an expanded middle. I think they can win 10 games in the Big 12. I wonder about getting to 10 in non-conference play. There are some gimmies, some easy ones in there. We think. We thought that last year, too. I would say getting to 10 in non-conference play is going to depend on winning the Cancun Challenge, beating Ohio State and Missouri. I think you got to get two out of those three to get to 20 wins. Over-under 19, I don't think it's as ambitious as over-under of 20. I would put the over-under at 20 and a half. I think they're capable of getting 20 or 21. That's where I put it at right now. Leading score, I would go Matthews. Leading rebounder, Oscar. Leader in steals, Jermaine Haley. The second part of his question, will Mike be on another CBS special featuring Bob Huggins? If you could talk about what led up to you being included in the Meta March piece, who approached you, etc. Okay, several years ago, CBS did a Men of March feature on Bob Huggins. And what the Meta March is, is what they're basketball wing at CBS does for the men of March, basically through top college basketball coaches. I was not a CBS employee at the time. This had nothing to me, nothing to do with me getting a job at CBS unless they saw that handsome, well-dressed man and said, we got to get him. May happen. Um, what happened was one night I was thinking December maybe, um, my phone started buzzing and I was getting notifications and texts and people said, hey, you're on TV. And I said, what? What did I do? And I thought it was one of those things where like I was on the news and sitting behind Holgerson or Huggins and looking like a dope, you know, scribbling things down or rolling my eyes at someone else's questions. I really get caught in bad situations like that a lot of times on camera. 
Um, but they told me, yeah, you're on CBS. And I said, oh, huh? And I've forgotten about it completely because it was in, I don't know, October, maybe two or three months earlier, depending on when it actually ran, where um, I had walked in to the gym and Huggins had immediately gotten on me about something. And I don't know if I was I was not late. I'm, I'm very punctual. Um, but he saw me and said something to me and I forget what it was completely. And then we were joking just he and I. And then he went off to his little media scrum and I was intimidated by the crowd, I guess. I couldn't reach into the audience to hear it. And I just kind of laid back. And when the huddle broke, Huggins said, hey, Mike, thanks for coming. Glad you could show up today. And I said, Bob, you know, I know it all. And he said something back to me and I said something back to him and everybody laughed. And not long after, one of the producers came up to me and said, hey, can we talk to you for a minute about this special we're doing on Bob Huggins? It's called The Men of March. It's going to run in a couple months. And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I did. And we talked for a couple minutes and that was that. What I believe happened was that they came in and they said, hey, who can we talk to among the media that can sparkle on camera? Who's so eloquent and dashing? They would look great on CBS, college sports. And they said, Bob Herzl. And then Hertz started swearing and didn't want to do it. And they came to me instead. But if you watch that special, I believe that that little interaction between Huggins and I about me saying I know it all, and I, I learned it all by osmosis or whatever, I forget what the line was, but that smart alecky stuff back and forth between he and I, that's on there. And I would imagine that CBS saw that and said, these two get along. Let's talk to him. Maybe he could say something. Next question. WB Rogue asks, because it can be a hot button topic for many people, where do we stand with the current upgrades to the football facilities? I know much of the work in Phase 2 can't begin until after the season, but I read where Shane Lyons gave a recent status update, and I haven't heard anything from that update. Once the phase is complete, what is the next area to be addressed? Once Phase 2 is complete, how will we stand in relation to other Big 12 schools? How will we compare to our former competitors that are now in other Power 5 conferences? What is our bucket list? What can we have complete by 2025? All right, I'm not sure I can answer all that um, with the amount of time I want to devote to it, but I'm also not sure I can answer that because those are questions we're not going to have answers to. Um, first, your status report would be news to me. I wasn't invited to that party if there was one. Um, wouldn't surprise me if there was. It wouldn't surprise me if it was just uh, among donors and employees or something like that. But I don't believe there was a media thing. So if you're looking for an article or a clip on YouTube, um, maybe because there wasn't a press conference open to the public or the press there. I think it would be hard to say where it would leave them when they're done because they're not really focusing on the stuff that we can see and compare at other places. We're talking about meeting space and locker rooms and kind of behind the scenes stuff that seems ancillary, but it's also important for coaches, not fans. It's important for recruits, not journalists. I've been to all the big 12 facilities and I've been inside and moved around a bunch of them. I've never seen like, I, I would say I rarely have seen where players hang out, their lounge, what the meeting rooms look like for the players. Um, so it'd be hard for me to compare you there. I think that they just want to keep moving forward and improve the stuff that they use every day. They're not going to have the nicer things when you're in a conference with some of these 
big money schools. Um, they should not try to be like Oklahoma or Texas. They should just make sure they have room where they meet and that they have HD televisions and that everybody has a good look at the screen and everybody has a comfortable chair and they have good food and the weight room is clean and stuff like that. Like they should have space and luxury, and all that stuff. Um, stuff should be clean. Stuff should be sharp. Stuff should be up to date. They should not want for modern amenities. Um, what are we talking about when we say what's next though? That's a good question because what is next? Like, what do they not have that they can have? Like they're not getting an IPF. They're not. That to me is like the only thing that they can do that would make you go, yes, that's it. But they're not going to get it. I think by and large, football has or is getting what it needs. It has a grass practice field. That's okay. They don't have an indoor field. That's okay. They're not going to get an indoor practice facility. I don't know how many times they're going to say that or they're going to do something else beside that to convince people, but that's what it is. So if we're talking a bucket list or we're talking about 2025, Let's be honest, like, what more is there that we can actually see? Like, they're not going to put a dome over the Coliseum. They're not going to have heated turf. Um, suites are interesting, but where and to what cost? Are they going to put more high-dollar loges and suites in and knock your attendance down a little bit? Do they move the student section? Do they sell some of the student section seats? But you do stuff like that. And you're kind of threatening the atmosphere a little bit. That would be my concern. Um, I think a lot of the stuff they may need or go for are going to be just what we consider, you know, accessories or bells and whistles, but are, again, really important things. You know, they got to have to meet and to plan and to watch video. Um, players lounges, maybe. Locker rooms, certainly. But stuff like that that's functional. And that doesn't seem very exotic. That's probably what they need to focus on. Um, this isn't a place where they're going to have putt-putt courses and, you know, parlor games and massage therapists or anything like that. That you might see at other schools that can, because this isn't a place that can do that. Um, they should just be constantly updating and facilitating as best as they can, I think. Uh, finally, WB Rugger asks, what is your favorite Big 12 football venue to visit and why? I will let you think about this because as I'm winding myself up here, but um, you have a number of them that are good cities that are hard to get to. Um, you have a couple that are easy to get to that maybe aren't great cities. So you have a couple places that are good venues for games, but maybe terrible to park at. My thing is that like I have to take this in on the totality <laughs> Um, and some of these things aren't fun for me to go to, and I don't miss traveling very much because it was a bear to get there. I did it for years. It was fun. I don't miss it. Um, by and large, I don't really think I need to be out the game to cover anymore either. So it's not really something I regret not being able to do, but I loved experiencing this stuff for the first time. Every time that I went to a new one, like I said, I went around, I looked at the facilities, I tried to get inside because one, that was part of the calculus of figuring out West Virginia's transition to the big 12 and, you got mad at me years and years ago when I said they have the worst stuff in the Big 12. And then Shane Lyons said, we have the worst stuff in the Big 12. But once you get out and see it, you understand it. So culturally, for me, it's been fun to go do it. Don't miss it. But it was a good experience and a benefit for me just to see and understand stuff. Um, what you think is probably my favorite is probably not my favorite. Um, I really like TCU's football stadium. I hate getting to TCU's football stadium. Um, it's like in a neighborhood. Parking's tough. Um, 
I'll, I'll leave the cooperation part of it out. Sometimes you don't get a ton of help from people there that you need. Um, but I love that they didn't rebuild. They redesigned. They took what they had and they made it better. And that's kind of cool to me because so often you see schools just knock something down and build it because they can. Um, I like what they did because it was different. And it's a nice place that they put a lot of thought and money into. Um, and also, it's pretty easy to get to Fort Worth. It's a great town to go to. Um, getting to their stadium isn't the easiest. Again, it's it's in a small-ish part of the town. It gets congested. Parking is tough for the media sometimes. Uh, not my favorite. But the good venue is kind of what you're asking, right? Um, Austin, Texas, is honestly, is one of the best cities in the country. Um, the football stadium is not all that. It's really hard to move around for the media. Um, parking is okay for the media, but getting around Austin is difficult because traffic is horrendous down there. Uh, my favorite one, I like Baylor. Waco's a fun little town, believe it or not. It's easy to get to. I like their stadium. Uh, again, I like rebuilding rather than building. Uh, they knock something down and build something, but it looks really nice. I like the stadium. I like the river. I like the bridge. It's got great views. You can walk around it. Um, easily parking's nice it's so accessible you get from a to b really fast like austin inside texas stadium you get lost trying to go to the media room it happens every year i've been there a couple times i still get lost baylor is just easy to move around everything's shiny and new um outside it looks good inside it looks good it's the way you should do stadiums nowadays i think surprised maybe that is all we're going to do today running out of time, right up in about an hour here too. Thought I would cut it off in an hour. I will spare you seven minutes of elevator music or me humming or stretching and we'll get out of here right now. Check back next week. Um, ooh, crossing my fingers for a guest. If not, I'll have to settle with Chris and me. But that's it for this time. I will see you next time for 247sports.com.